welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back. A big warm welcome for the 50th episode of the Keep It Quirky podcast. Wow, time flies. And I really can't think of a better guest to ring in the big 5-0. Fuchsia Dunlop is one of my culinary and literary heroes. Her memoir, Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper, a sweet, sour memoir of eating in China, is one of the best memoirs I've ever read, period. And then the fact that it's full of tantalizing food descriptions and recipes is really just the cherry on top. And the new edition of it has a foreword by the fabulous B. Wilson. Fuchsia has won four James Beard Awards, and her cookbooks about Chinese cuisine are the most significant books in English on the topic. From Sichuan Cookery, which in the U.S. was published as Land of Plenty, and we're going to talk about the revised edition of that in this episode, and Every Grain of Rice, Simple Chinese Home Cooking. She's written a lot of other cookbooks, just check them out. Some of her other work has appeared in The New Yorker, Saveur, Lucky Peach, The Financial Times, and Gourmet. You've also probably seen her as a guest on Netflix's Ugly Delicious with David Chang and Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. If you can't tell by now, Fuchsia is a force of nature. Talking with her was a huge honor. I was so tickled also by how kind and down to earth she was, which you'll hear very soon. And even more, her ongoing love of her work is evident. And man, I aspire to have that same joy and curiosity about whatever I'm doing in the next, you know, 10, 20 years um, that she has continued with her career. Her professional life has taken a non-traditional path. Um, Her career began with a sub-editing job at the BBC, which led her to take Mandarin classes. And after that, she won a British Council scholarship to study a year in Chengdu, China, which is the heart of Sichuan province. And the rest, as they say, is history. So without further delay, you've got to meet Fuchsia. Hi, Fuchsia. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the Keep It Quirky podcast. It's good to meet you finally. I After know. quite a bit of touring and crying. I know. I'm thrilled that we made it happen. And you have just re-released, revised, updated your amazing book, The Food of Sichuan. So thank you for taking the time in this crazy period. You're very welcome. And you just got back from China. Yeah, Monday evening, two days ago. (laughs) How long were you there this trip? About four or five weeks. Whoa, so this was a pretty big trip. It is a normal trip for me. Really? Okay. (laughs) Four or five weeks is average. Yeah, yeah. If you could break down the ratio of time that you are in London versus China, what does that break down? Well, I mean, normally I would do two long trips a year, each one more than a month. Um, But I just decided to have a sort of year of traveling this year. So since September, I've been in China most of the time. So I've done several long trips and then come back to London for a few weeks here and there. Is that for like a personal, just kind of passion project in a way after you've done 
on like very mission oriented trips so much recently. Oh, it's all the mission of finding out more about Chinese food. So I've got various projects on the go and it's just endlessly fascinating. But I just wanted to spend sort of some more in-depth time just speaking Chinese, being in a Chinese environment and just exploring places I hadn't been to. Sure. I mean, your fluency in Chinese must need polishing just like any other skill, right? Yeah, I mean, I think Chinese, it's a language that you really, almost more than other languages, you need to be using to keep it up because the sounds of Chinese are not as sort of structured and memorable in the way that, that the words of European languages are. So I just find that, um, yeah, I need to keep refreshing the vocabulary by speaking it all the time. Which is an amazing excuse to keep going back to a place that you love. I... I'm, I am so thrilled by your continuous excitement about Chinese cuisine. You have done so many things and you've been interviewed a lot of times. So it's like, what are the new questions to ask Fuchsia? Like, what will not bore her to talk about? It is so evident that Chinese food for you is the furthest thing from boring. Yeah, and that's the thing that I find surprising is that, I mean, it's going on for 25 years now and I am still kind of excited and amazed by making new discoveries all the time. And I really can't think of another cuisine that would be quite as rich and full of possibilities. I mean, you you could tell the moment that it took your heart that there was something really special about this, right? Yeah, but I mean, obviously, I didn't know what I was taking on. I mean, initially, I just was living in Sichuan and I was eating delicious Sichuanese food and wanting to find out more about it. But it certainly wasn't a career plan or a long term project at that stage. But I have just gone on sort of meeting fascinating chefs and food producers and food writers in China. And all these sort of new avenues of, of exploration keep opening up. So is your strategy, if you will, like from a business entrepreneurial standpoint, do you do you come up with like five year, 10 year plans or it seems like you really just follow you follow your interest to wherever it leads you? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like it's by now a lifelong project. And so everything I learn is sort of useful and valuable for something. So there are various books I want to write and there's a kind of cue in my head of what I want to write. So it's not, I'm never exclusively working on one thing. So then if I'm in China, something else comes up and I'll sort of pigeonhole that for the next book or something. So I've got material, sort of amassing material and ideas and recipes for several possible books. (laughs) <laughs> which I hope will eventually bear fruit. That's but so not exciting. All at once. How do you keep track of all this? Do you have like several notebooks that you fill or do you are you like a Google Docs keeping track of it all? No, I've got, um, you know, 150 or so notebooks. Whoa. Oh, I've got, do you want to see one here? Yeah, I would love to see one. So, um, and I just, yeah, this is the lot, the end. So I, I, for the most recent trip, I've got about three or four notebooks. Oh, and this is the end. And I see like some sketches in there. Oh, just a little bit. <laughs> and like little pieces of paper that yeah. you've also, yes. Oh my gosh, I love it. So yeah, so I, I have, and then also increasingly, I also take digital photographs, which is so useful now for recreating recipes. Particularly. Which, I love your Instagram too. It's so fun to follow. It, it, it's a snapshot in your life and it's an awesome life. So that's a good thing. And you are at Fuchsia Dunlop on Instagram for anyone who wants to follow. Tell me more about the role that digital photography plays in in recipe creation, you're saying. 
Well, it's just that, you know, in the old days, I was always taking notes. So I would describe the dish and the taste and maybe even do a sketch of it. But then essentially I would be recreating it from memory. And now I literally have photographs, I mean, maybe of a dish in one place, maybe of several different versions. And they are part of my references when I'm back in my kitchen in London making a recipe. <laughs> that, that's so awesome. And let's talk about the dishes in this book, The Food of Sichuan, it's coming out again almost 20 years later. The photography in here is beautiful. The dishes are beautiful. How, how much would you say that these photographs are representative of these digital shots you would have taken on the go? Oh, well, I mean, I hope that the dishes look... I mean, it's actually quite funny. I did an interview with a Chinese journalist yesterday and she could not believe that all the food in there was cooked by me in a London kitchen. She had assumed that all the photos were taken in China. So, of course, I was hugely flattered by that. (laughs) So, I mean, I would say that um, I'm very much not trying to innovate. I'm trying to report faithfully on what I find in China. But at the same time, that's not one rigid thing because often I've tasted a dish made by several different places and occasionally I have to use a slightly different paleo accompanying ingredient um, because the one that's typically used is not fine or something like that. But I would say, and also I have a particular preference for a quite naturalistic presentation without fussy garnishes and things. So I would say that, you know, the way I choose to present a dish, there's a little personal element, but I hope very much that, you know, when someone Chinese eats my cooking, and they do, they can see that it's it's Chinese food who are not, not expecting to be cooked by an English woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, you must love that element of surprise that you just like bring in like every room you go into, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's hilarious in China because, you know, it's very surprising to people to find a Westerner who can cut properly or can cook a decent mapo tofu. Yeah, yeah. You were able to work with the same team of people, the same photographer um, that, that helped you around the first time. Yes, yeah. So Yuki Sugura, it was a complete joy working with her on my last book, Land of Fish and Rice. So a totally different region and a totally different feeling to the food. So that was sort of very gentle and refined and more more sort of green and blue colors. And with Sichuan, it's all these bold flavors and wonderful warm reds and pinks, you know. Um, but yes, so Yuki and Cynthia, who was the prop, Cynthia Indians, the prop stylist, so with the backgrounds and so on. And we just work really well together. And Yuki loves eating my food so she quite we have quite good good to have on lunches yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah and then you also got um the woman from xian impression, impression yes what's her name again oh, Gui Rong Wei. so Gui she's Rong she's a wonderful chef from xian and i originally know her knew her because she was working at bar shu at the sichuan restaurant for which i was a consultant That's for right. about 10 years and so we've been become friends and um, she assisted me um, with the shoots for my last book. And this time, now that she's opened her own restaurant, I really, I didn't think she'd be interested. And I actually um, was quite hesitant to even ask her. I mean, I love cooking with her, but I thought she'd be much too busy. But in the end, I did say, you know, would, and she was very keen because, and she, it, quite interestingly, she says that she learned some things from me in, in my approach. Really? 
Yeah, that that the way that I cook, and there are some things that I do that. Uh, uh, I mean, for example, the the fact that I really try and go back to basics. I don't use MSG and you know chicken essence, and I really want to showcase the culture of the place that I'm writing about. And so she says that she's found that quite inspiring for her in what she does. So of course she doesn't need to learn anything from me about cooking, but just the way the way that that I'm working so and we just get along very well in the kitchen and of course it's completely wonderful for me to have someone who um, you know I can ask her would you mind cutting the ginger into slivers and I know it will be cut properly the in the right Chinese way, way yes. and stuff and so yeah it's wonderful so we had these very jolly days in my kitchen and that's ideal because I I'm sure that it could be a very long day if you didn't have that team of of awesome people around yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, it is exhausting, but it's just lovely. And I just felt that, um, you know, I'm very, very happy with the way the photographs turned out. As you should be. And Shian Impression, just for the record, just why I got so excited that I saw that you had worked with her, Shian Impression is one of my favorite places oh, to eat in London. Have you been to her new one? Where is it? Oh, Master Way. And it's just around the corner from here. No way. Yeah, so this is, um, she's also doing Xi'an street food, but with a few other things. And it's gorgeous. It's lovely. Oh, that might be lunch. <laughs> I think it should be lunch. That's really good to know. Okay, yeah. awesome. So little things when you're cooking with someone in the kitchen, little things that she probably knows that an average uh, person who would help you on a shoot wouldn't know is like re-seasoning a wok, which I didn't know until I read your direction to do so. Yeah. And so do you re-season the wok every time? Yeah. I mean, so if I'm, I mean, if I'm cooking, say a dish, stir fried chicken, for example, um, if you don't heat the wok first with a layer of oil to season it and then pour off that oil and add fresh cool oil to cook, the chicken's going to stick. Yeah. Okay. And so... Every time, even if it's well seasoned to begin with. Yeah. Okay. So you want to heat it very hot with some oil. So I normally have a pot of oil next to the cooker, swirl it round, heat it till it's smoking, pour it off and then add some oil and then start cooking. And then it doesn't stick and it all slides around the wok nicely. So that's, it's really important. I mean, with some ingredients that don't stick, it doesn't matter so much like vegetables, but when you have um, chicken or fish that's clothed in a bit of starch or not, then it, it can stick. And once it sticks, then you get a layer on the wok of food that then burns and you can't move it around. Yeah, and so those simple habits that you just incorporate into your daily cooking that's what keeps it yes from sticking yes okay so you're obviously an incredible cook well <laughs> well i mean i feel like i'm always learning <laughs> well that's and that's and that's beautiful that's a that's why you're so good at it because you do continue to learn but hands down amazing cook you graduated from this cookery school which do you care to talk about that you've already talked about sure, it so yeah, much happy to talk about it. i mean it was a long time ago but it yeah. was definitely a memorable experience and the first western person slash woman to be admitted um into the sichuan cooking school yeah i mean i think i was the, yeah i mean i was the first foreigner they'd ever had yeah. and probably I mean, I'm probably the first foreigner to have gone to a chef school in China full stop, I would imagine. Yeah. Because it wasn't really possible until right. the 90s to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And I was one of only three women. So in a, there were 50 young men in the class and two women. <laughs> right. And to make it through that, I mean, talk about, talk about, a you know, you have to, you have to get your skills good enough to not walk out of there without missing a hand, right? 
Oh, oh, well, I mean, it was great fun. It was hilarious. And it was, you know, the teachers were wonderful. And it was just the kind of cooking that I really enjoy. So no shortcuts, no machines, everything done by hand. I mean, I felt very lucky to have been studying, you know, in that period. Yeah. It was really at the most fantastic grounding in, in not just Sichuanese, but Chinese cooking, like the knife skills right. and wok skills and so, so on. When, so when you say it was great fun... It makes me think that it was probably the opposite of... So I went to culinary school, went to Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. So like very much what the stereotype is, right? And it's like, we chef and everyone's on their best behavior, which is what I assume your cooking school was like too, your your culinary education. Is that accurate or no? The great fun thing makes it sound like it was maybe a little more... No, it was quite relaxed. Was yeah. it? So, so we would... Um, you know, Sichuan is a very relaxed place anyway. <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, we, we spent the mornings in the classroom learning culinary theory. So the teacher would be writing things on the board. And then we would go and watch a demonstration and then taste. And then in the afternoon, we divided up into teams of 10 and then cooked the dishes ourselves. But um, yeah, it was it was lovely. I mean, it just made me so happy to be cooking this delicious food and also to be sort of unpicking the culinary techniques to make these um, incredible dishes that I'd already been tasting in Sichuan and it was a completely different set of skills and theories and concepts from the European cooking that I had been doing before. Do you think that there's such a thing as destiny? Because it seems like you are a person who is doing exactly what you were put on this earth to do. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I do sometimes feel that um, this path has sort of opened up in a way that was not really entirely deliberate in my part. I mean, there was a great element of serendipity. So being in China at that time when the system was changing, it was opening up, suddenly things were becoming possible, like for a foreigner to go to cooking school. And also also just as a writer to be sort of learning about this incredible cuisine which had been so poorly represented in English so um, it was a sort of great opportunity and also just that I've had so much encouragement from people in China who have who have just shepherded me and helped me all along the way and answered questions and encouraged me and you know there was a period that I wrote about in Sharksville and Sichuan Pepper my mom memoir there was a period when I just got very exhausted with all the traveling and I was just thinking maybe I should just be a normal English person and sort of go home. <laughs> and then actually, um, you know, the reasons that I did carry on at that point were partly that there were so many people saying, come on, you've got to write about this. Come to our region and write about this. And I, I also just, um, I, I just so admire these people that I meet in China who love their food culture and are really trying to preserve traditions and teach. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I love working with them. Yeah. You know, in a way, it's cool to hear you say that you had some doubts or misgivings or were unsure. The, the, the fact that you had any, even a glimmer of uncertainty at a certain point is just refreshing to hear because it's like, oh, you're human. Of course, oh. you, because looking at it and especially with kind of retrospect and what you've done and the career you've built and all of the amazing work you've done, it seems like 
yeah, like I said before, she was meant to do this. Yeah, but no, there were very sticky periods. Like, you know, when I lived in Hunan and I just went to a place I didn't know to research a book, which it was a mad idea. And I didn't know anyone there. So at first it was lonely. It rained every day. There was the SARS epidemic, this pneumonia epidemic. So it meant that everything was closing and all the other foreigners, there weren't very many there anyway, but they all went home. So that was a really difficult period. And um, yeah, and I, and I suppose it's, you know, I spent a lot of time in China being the only foreigner, um, often being the only woman surrounded by male chefs. And, um, you yeah, know, it's, it's, I mean, it's completely fascinating, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of, you know, it's, it's a funny thing to be doing, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is called the Keep It Quirky podcast, so it's very fitting. I'm glad you brought up Shark's Fin and Citron Pepper because this book um, has been a huge inspiration to me. I just brought it out of my bag here and I'm going to ask you to sign it later. Um, But the reason that I'm glad you brought it up in the context of you having gone to cookery school and the fact that you are a chef is that you're also a writer. And I think that this book, well, I know I've, I've heard so many people tell you before that it's their favorite book, that it's the best food memoir they've ever read. Um, I, I will add on to that compliment. Um, you remind me of MFK Fisher. Mm. Well, that's the greatest compliment a food writer could ever have. <laughs> Yeah, because she's amazing. But and so okay, so you're you're a fan of her? Totally. Oh, I, she she's the best, really. She's a writer. She's yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um. So t- to me, you are her for for me. Um. Who else do you admire? Who else do you look to? Oh well, I mean, of course, I admire the sort of ethnographic food writing. You know, Claudia Roden. And I, I grew up with her book of Middle Eastern food. My mother used to to. Um, cook from that and then I also I actually love the recipes and the writing of Fergus Henderson Mm. of St John so it's a totally different style and it's very spare and economical and extremely vivid and sometimes hilarious and very distinctive style I mean just the way he writes recipes and the introductions Um, and there's also do you know John Lanchester no Um, the debt to pleasure is the best food novel and the descriptions of food in that are so wonderful and it's it's funny and dark and <laughs> brilliantly written when you sit down to write what's your what's your path what's your strategy um i don't think i would really have one so i mean i do write quite a bit in the field and actually, I get have these moments of utter bliss and inspiration when I've eaten something wonderful or fascinating in China. And sometimes the, the notes that I take then and the sketches that I write then can be the best writing. And, and then like I'll first use draft, them. done. Yeah. Yeah. So they can be some of the ingredients. And... Um, yeah, but I mean, I don't really have a strategy or a plan. And I think that writing is something that it's never completely in one's control. And, um, you know, you can sit down and write, but the really excellent writing sometimes just sort of happens. I mean, it's something a little mysterious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And how does it, so we're sitting in the Bloomsbury offices in London right now. How does it work with your editor? How, how much of a back and forth is it typically for you? Um, 
Well, so for a cookbook, I submit usually fairly clean copy, I think, and the recipes are well tested. And um, yeah, so it comes back with a few queries, but I mean, not massive reworking usually, but I think writing a cookbook is relatively straightforward um, because it's very structured and you have small vignettes of writing sure. and, and recipes. Yeah. So um, when, when it comes to sort of actually putting the book together, there are some layout issues and, and, and very useful queries that an editor will pick up inconsistencies and so on. But with Shark's Fin and Citron Pepper, um, that was with a different editor and that was very interesting for me. So um, sometimes the editor would... Um, pick up some sort of something that didn't hold together you know that two sections that didn't really work or something that was a bit flabby and my immediate reaction was always outrage <laughs> and sort of attachment right this but is then, my baby yeah yeah and um, but then I would think about it and realize that she had absolutely nailed the <laughs> yeah. issue okay and that then um and then sometimes I would take her solution sometimes I would offer a different solution but it was great um because when you're buried in a narrative book it's sometimes difficult to step back and see the whole thing mm-hmm. um, particularly when you're writing in the sort of deadline mode right you know you don't t- 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 i think sometimes if you put something aside and then come back to it then you can get a kind of perspective right but um it definitely helps to have someone else to point out things from a distance right especially when you're writing about something so personally yes Okay, so the different kinds of writing you do. So you do cookbook writing, um, you do more narrative, and then you've also done these incredible kind of more short form pieces. Um, You've won some James Beard Awards for them. The one in particular I'm thinking of is um, Lucky Peach. Uh, You wrote about... um, a penis. A cooking stag pizzles. That's stag it. penises. Stag yes. pizzles. That was the word I was Dick looking soup for. Dixie was Dick the soup. name of the article. Thank you. Thank you. Th- these are all such different kinds of writing. And Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper makes me think of MFK Fisher, like I said. But then you're also pulling out like Julia Child with like the food of Sichuan. You're pulling out all of the, it, it's like there's, there's so much. Um, there's so much that you're able to do. And so I'm wondering how you break down each given writing assignment. Um, well, sometimes it's very difficult because with with writing cookbooks, the recipe testing takes an extraordinary amount of time because it what it involves is, first of all, research and looking through lots of notebooks for me and then deciding how I want to approach a recipe, then shopping, prepping, cooking, taking notes, writing up and washing up. <laughs> Wait, you still do all that stuff? I do it all myself, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. That's who, awesome. Who else am I going to get to? <laughs> <laughs> That's really, really cool. Call me next time. I'll help you dishwash up. Um, yeah, because I'm doing something very particular. And so I just, you know, I, I, I could not delegate um, getting the recipe right to taste like something I've tasted in China. It's just impossible. So I, I just have to do it. And so with recipe testing, um, sometimes, particularly with easy recipes, the first time it comes out, great. Or it's obvious what the little tweak is I need to make. But some more complex recipes... 
actually one has to keep, you know, I think, oh, well, I think it will work better if I slightly adjust this. So gongbao chicken, which is one of the best recipes in the first edition, but I think this version is even better. And I must have made it, you know, I mean, really quite a number of times just saying, you know, is this going to work if I just adjust the sugar and vinegar or something like that? And you retested every single recipe in here? Yes. And then you added another, what, 50 recipes? I think it is nearly 70. I mean, it depends whether you include ones where I replaced the original recipe, which I did in several, and then some that were completely new. Yeah. This is a tome of Sichuan cooking. It's incredible. It's such a huge accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Would you have thought almost 20 years ago when you wrote the first one that that there would be a need, an interest, a, a greater clamor for it to be updated? No, because the, the original edition, so it was published in the US as Land of Plenty and in Britain as Sichuan Cookery. The first edition was, my proposal was rejected by, I think, six publishers. Oh, wow. And they all said that they didn't think British readers would be interested in a regional Chinese cookbook, that it was too narrow. And it's just that, obviously, you know, nearly 20 years later, one can't imagine anyone saying that about Sichuanese food because there's such an appetite for specialist cookbooks in general. And with China, there's a, a sort of growing recognition that Chinese cuisine is just not not just one thing, but it's this patchwork of incredible regional cuisines from places which are as large as European countries. Yeah. So uh, certainly no. But I mean, also when I wrote the first book, I mean, I never would have imagined that I would be capable of writing a book because I used to find writing so strange. <laughs> Which is so hilarious and ironic. But what are you going to do? Mm. <laughs> now you're a writer full time. Yeah. I end every conversation with asking how you keep it quirky. You mean just unconventional and fun? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose that, I mean, certainly I never had a conventional approach to career. So I just always wanted to do interesting things. And so. I I did a degree in English literature at Cambridge, but um, it didn't seem uh, to my Chinese friends it seems incredible that then I went to a cooking school. Like they can't imagine why someone with an academic background. But I don't have a hierarchical view of manual and intellectual things. They're they're equally valuable, and so I have never found any sort of conflict or inconsistency between sort of being academically inclined and really wanting to sort of get dirty in a kitchen. Um, so there's that. And I never had a, a sort of um, conventional career path. So I know it looks very logical as if I've just sort of come to this point um, in a very rational way, but it wasn't really. And I did, you know, I had an opportunity, you know, I had a, quite a good job in the BBC, which I could have, if I'd wanted to, maybe gone on to do a correspondent or something, yeah. maybe. And then, you know, I sort of, um, you know, went part time effectively sort of, you know, I didn't pursue that to write a cookbook on a subject that I didn't know I'd be interested and then you know I've I've done lots of I mean I've sort of I I have taken on projects because I find them interesting not because I think they're going to be successful or you know profitable (laughs) I mean just because I think they're worthwhile and I've just been lucky that I've managed to make it work but I just and I think um, you know my parents had a very unconventional approach like there was no pressure for me to do anything particular or my brother and sister we were completely free you know encouraged to do what we wanted to do and my parents would have been perfectly 
happy if I had gone and become a chef when I was 18, which is one of the things that I was quite attracted to doing rather than going to university. So I think that in my Even family... Even before you went to university, you, were, you had the culinary bug. Yeah, well, I remember actually, I remember telling a middle school teacher when I was 11 that I wanted to be a chef. What? I mean, I loved cooking from a very early age. Yeah. And so I was always quite, and then actually a a friend of mine at Cambridge wrote a book and he he mentioned, he wrote about me in it and he actually mentioned that I had wanted to be a chef. And I had forgotten that when I was like 19 or something, I actually, that was what I wanted to do with my life. Wow. I love that. So, I mean, I think that's a huge lesson for all of us to follow your interests because it it can be like pulling a rabbit out of a hat where the more rabbits just keep coming right yeah but I mean I, I've also always been very practical I mean I've always earned a living so um, you know and I've um, you know certainly when when I started writing my I mean my first book I got a very small advance and I used to just earn money in London and then go and spend it all on traveling around China so I mean I wasn't making any money for yeah. it was um, but I, I sort of made it work somehow. Make it work. That That is a good note to end on. Fuchsia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much again to Fuchsia. You can follow her on Instagram at Fuchsia Dunlop. That's spelled F-U-C-H-S-I-A-D-U-N-L-O-P. She also does culinary tours around China. She works with a great travel company to put them on, and she does all the fun foodie stuff with you. So if you're interested, definitely look into that. There's information on her website, which I'm linking to in the show notes. And big shout out to Ed Levine, founder of Sirius seats for connecting me with fuchsia it's a small food world and people are really great so thank you so much ed and don't forget y'all should check out his book serious eater a food lover's perilous quest for pizza and redemption and also ed was episode number eight of this podcast so scroll down and check that out thank you to funky brian for the theme song you hear right now Alrighty, 50th episode done. If you've been listening to Keep It Quirky from the start, or if you're a new listener, I'd really appreciate it if you take the time to leave a five-star review. And thanks. Until next time, don't forget to keep it quirky. Peace.